Open your Bibles to the book of the Gospel of Mark. Most of us will be able to find that because we're pretty good with the Gospels. Uh, it's the second book in the New Testament. Uh, we'll covered Matthew last week, and now we will cover Mark, the second of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, as you're turning to Mark, flip all the way over and start with Mark chapter 14, verse, uh, verse 51. Uh, my approach, we're walking through the books of the Bible. We've already done all the Old Testament from, uh, from the first five books, to the Torah, to the prophets, to the major prophets, the minor prophets, Psalms and Proverbs, wisdom literature. And now we are into the New Testament and we are, we're into Mark. Uh, it's a little uh, odd section here and uh, I'll just read it uh, and we'll go from there. Jesus had just been uh, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark notes this, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So we have the first streaker recorded in God's word. Most scholars believe this is probably Mark. He's probably regretting that this was him, and he's noting uh, that about him. It's the only gospel that makes note of that peculiar uh, beginning. Well, it's not the beginning of Mark, but he does note that. So we're going to talk about the gospel of Mark. It's the shortest of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then when I say shortest, it has the shortest number of verses. If you go in the order of canon, the way they're in the Bible, it would go Matthew, Mark, Luke. They're not listed chronologically. Mark actually, and what I'm going to get to is Mark was probably the first of the three written. And the other two, Matthew and Luke, probably referenced Mark's uh, and then uh, uh, expanded on it and added a lot more to them. Uh, The circumstance of the writing... uh, the early historian uh, Eusebius, uh, he wrote in AD 326 that uh, this gospel writer, uh, and most likely was John Mark, uh, and Papias said this as well, Mark probably recorded Peter's preaching about the things Jesus said and did. So probably uh, Mark and Peter are best buds like a, like a Paul and a Timothy, okay? Uh, or Paul was, Timothy was to Paul what Mark is to Peter. Okay? So not a disciple of Jesus, but as we look at John Mark, and that's his, it's not just Mark, but John Mark. As we look at him, he had a lot of interactions with the disciples, the early, the, the early believers of the church. And uh, John Mark was Jewish. He was born in Jerusalem. He probably lived in a well-to-do family. His mother was Mary, not the Mary of Jesus, but there were a lot of Marys back then. And Mary had a large house, a large meeting house, and this is probably where the early church met a lot in the book of Acts. And it could be where Jesus possibly ate the Lord's Supper with his disciples. Uh, Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas and Paul are going to do a huge, their missionary journeys together, Uh, and uh, Mark does go with Paul to start one, but on the first missionary journey, he decides to quit and turn back, and it's noted in Acts, this rubs Paul the wrong way, Mr. Lion, he's like, you're dead to me, you quitter. Uh, 
eventually at the end of Paul's life, he comes back and, and says, okay, bring Mark with you. He's a useful man to me in ministry, he says in 2 Timothy. Uh, after Paul is uh, executed, Mark is said to have moved to Egypt, established churches there, and served them in Alexandria. Mark's audience, Mark's readers, who he's writing to and why he's doing this, he's, he's writing this probably around the time of A.D. 60, 55, 60, somewhere in there. It's before the temple's destroyed uh, by the Romans in A.D. 70. Uh, but he's writing this to, to the Romans. The audience are the Romans, the Gentiles. Uh, his, his, uh, his readers are facing persecution by Nero, Terrible persecutions at that, uh, and his gospel helps to strengthen and guide these believers through the trials of Nero. That's going to come their way. You're going to see throughout the book, being Jesus' disciple is costly. For the early followers of Jesus and for Jesus, to follow God with everything you are, uh, it's going to be costly. The world that they live in then was hostile towards God and his ways. The world we live in today is the same. Jesus is going to experience rejection, suffering, and eventually martyrdom, yet God is behind all of his afflictions. Uh, so Mark wrote this to the early believers in, of the gospel in Rome, probably just before Peter was martyred. Uh, because he's writing to the Romans... A unique thing about him is he doesn't explain Jewish customs. They don't care. Uh, they're, they're Romans. Uh, he doesn't translate a lot of Aramaic words and phrases into Greek. He uses Latin terms rather than Greek equivalents. He rarely quotes from the Old Testament. Matthew is going to quote the Old Testament all the time. Uh, Mark rarely does that. And most scholars are convinced that Mark is the earliest gospel and served as one of the sources for Matthew and Luke. Uh, one thing you'll notice also about uh, Mark's accounts, or I actually taught in my cornerstone class, I taught through the whole book of Mark. It only took like two years. But uh, you go pericope by pericope, section by section, and you teach it through it all. But you notice as you look through and you read, go through Mark's gospel, we can't go through it all tonight, but Mark is a little ADD. He like just jumps from this story to that story to this story to that story to that story. And the word that connects it more, than, more times than not is immediately. It seems like Jesus is just hopping immediately from this to immediately this and then immediately the, he's moving. Uh, maybe it's because he's talking to the Greeks. Uh, he wanted to write it that way, but that's just, it is very fast moving. The structure of the gospel, uh, of Mark's gospel is fairly straightforward. It starts with a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And then there's three sections that divide the Gospel of Mark. The first section talks about Jesus' Galilean ministry, uh, chapter 1 through 14, all the way to chapter 8. So about the first seven chapters, it's going to talk about uh, all that Jesus does. It doesn't talk a whole lot about his teaching. It pretty much jumps from miracle to miracle to miracle of what Jesus does and how he impacts people, how people come to him and they heal, he, they, he heals them. Uh, a guy with a paralyzed hand, an unclean spirit is cast out, a woman uh, touches him uh, with blood. Jesus works and then he proves he's a Messiah and then he moves to the next thing. It's, it's moving. So that's the first section. The second section, which is what I'm going to key on mostly tonight, I get to pick and choose what we look at because I'm up here. Uh, 
And if y'all want to look at the whole gospel, we can be here for a couple of, yeah, we can have a lock-in. But uh, we're not going to do that. So the second section is where we're going to spend most of our time. In this section, it's a transitional section from 8.22 to 10.52. And I'm going to suggest to you, I think you get the whole purpose of the book based on Jesus' interaction with his disciples in, in that section. Uh, he answers both the who and how he is this Messiah figure. The third section uh, is the last week in Jerusalem for Jesus. So uh, about a third of his book is on one week of Jesus, uh, which is huge in the Christian faith. And in the, in the, to be a I mean, what happened that week is huge ramifications. So it's going to talk about this death, burial, resurrection, what the Messiah does and what he doesn't do. But I'll get to that in a minute. So those are the sections. How Mark relates to Matthew and Luke, I already said it's the first gospel probably written. Uh, There's several different suggestions as to why Mark used a lot more emotive and frank language than Matthew did. Mark uh, has many difficult, even negative expressions like hardening the heart and things like that that's omitted by Matthew. Redactional differences are best explained as Matthew editing Mark. And it makes more sense if you think about it logically. Why, if, if John Mark had Matthew and Luke, why would he cut out what Jesus said, the Beatitudes and all these things, and shrink it down to make his book? Uh, it makes sense that probably Mark came first. It helps explain the 235 verses in Matthew and Luke that contain these sayings of Jesus not found in Mark. Mark is not interested in all that Jesus said and taught. He's interested in telling uh, who and what Jesus did and why that's important. So you have the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew is an eyewitness. He adds detail from his own experiences and his own heart, and he presents Christ as the king of the Jews in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Luke, next week, portrays Christ as the perfect son of man, includes facts gleaned from many early followers of Christ. Now, what is Mark's purpose in writing his book. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time on. Uh, go to Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of his book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You notice he doesn't start with the birthing story of Jesus and the, all that. He goes right into uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus Christ, that's not first and last name like Keith Hamilton. No, no. Uh, Jesus is his, is his Jewish name, and then Christ is his title. Christ, Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of John's book. Jesus, Christ, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, the Christ, in the Greek, it means to be anointed, uh, from Christos, uh, to, the Messiah is the is the Jew, is the is the Hebrew word, and then uh, Christos, Christ, uh, they're equivalent. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the ones the Jews have been looking for all the way in the Old Testament, looking forward. Where is this Messiah figure that's going to come? John starts with those very words: the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. So he leaves no doubt what his book is about. Uh, then it goes on uh, there, and there's three 
uh, attestations or confirmations that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, First, he says, it's one of the times he quotes Old Testament, but he doesn't do it a lot. In verse 2, as it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, this is, uh, this is of course, talking about John the Baptist. Um, I drew a blank. Oh, it's from Isaiah. Yeah, it's from Isaiah. So he's, he's, he's saying John the Baptist, uh, he was going to point people to this figure, Jesus, uh, that he's one better. Then John the Baptist later looked down in, in verse, uh, verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance. And then jump down to verse 7, and he, he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I. And then he goes down at the end of verse 8, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, this is the one, Mark says, uh, this is the one Isaiah was pointing to that's greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this is the one that he was saying, one's coming greater than me. And then lastly, you see in verse 11, God himself is going to confirm who Jesus is. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now that's at Jesus' baptism by John. So God himself says, this is my beloved son. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one y'all have been waiting for. So it seems fairly straightforward, yet the problem's going to be, and throughout the rest of the book, uh, if you were a Jew in that time and you had studied Old Testament, all the, all the prophets and all this Messiah, what this Messiah figure is going to be, at this time when it was written, and the scenario that's going on around in AD 30 to AD 33, again, this is like, you know, this is Christ's time. And then 20 years later or so, Mark's going to write this down in the book. But it's talking about 30 AD. Every Jew living there is under Roman oppression. The Romans are in control of Israel. They call the shots. They tell them uh, everything they can do and everything they can't do. If you were a Jew living at this time, you would expect this Messiah, whoever this Messiah is, he's going to come. Of course, he's going to be from the house of David. And he's going to come and he's going to bring back and restore Israel to the prominent, the most prominent time when no nation dared attack Israel. And that was when David was on his throne and they were the most powerful nation they ever were. You had visions of this Messiah figure coming in and he was going to wipe out the Romans. Uh, he's going to be this huge uh, military warrior, conqueror, political warrior. And he's going to make Israel be the number one nation again. Restore Israel. That's what they were looking for when they're thinking of the Messiah. That's their Messiah. They don't care so much about individual little things. No, no, it's national Messiah. Restore us to prominence. That is what they're looking for. That's the Jewish idea. Now note what Jesus says in uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. It starts with Jesus. The problem that you're going to see is 
what do you do with this Jesus Messiah figure? Because he's way different than what they anticipated, expected, and even wanted. He comes and totally blows their mind about their, their paradigm of how it's all going to go down. Have you ever like figured it and put, put God in a little box and said, God, this is my plans for my life. This is how it's all going to go down. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And don't ever change anything, God. Well, evidently, God thinks he's God and he calls the shots. We don't call the shots. So our presuppositions, our, our, our ways of trying to explain God, our whatever, if you want to talk tulip or if you want to talk uh, man's choice or if you want to talk whatever, we come with these presuppositions of how God acts. Did I lose you on tulip? I wasn't talking about the flower, although it's beautiful. Uh, okay, Calvinism or Arminianism, okay? If still no, that's not the point of my talk tonight. That'll be another time. We try to come up with our, our systems of explaining God and how he's going to work. The Jews in their time uh, for sure had their expectations. And as Jesus encounters these people, and Mark's going to note how the, these encounters, uh, some are going to accept him the right way and some are not. Some is going to take longer for them to accept what his message was and what he's about. And some are never going to accept him. And some accept him immediately. Like, that hour. They just met him, they see what he does, and that hour they're saved. Because of their faith and belief, he says, you're now part of the kingdom of God. So this idea of this coming of Jesus versus the Jewish idea is going to be a conflict that's going to happen throughout. Um, A couple of themes. uh, The Christology. Again, the Messiah of who he is, what his purpose is, why he's come. uh, How God chooses to say this is for sure my Messiah and what he does because of that uh, is going to be key. You're going to see things that Jesus did and then you're going to see who Jesus was. He performs miracles. He taught wondrous truths. He prepared people for the kingdom of God. Uh, At the same time, he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Fully God, fully man. It's hard to put those two things together, but according to the Bible, that's what Jesus was. and, according to Isaiah, he, he is the suffering servant of God. Uh, Mark centers on Jesus as a teacher and a rabbi more than what Matthew does. Uh, and every time he has these encounters with these people, Jesus always wants to <laughs> say, uh, don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. Why would Jesus do that? Well, I referenced to it already. Their idea of what the Messiah figure was going to be this guy's healing. Okay, the more he heals, the more news spreads, the more it's on Facebook and Twitter and things happen. Man, this guy is the guy that's going to make Israel supreme and restore us to prominence, right? It is not what Jesus knew all along. Well, uh, this guy is going to die for those he loves. He's going to be a suffering servant. So the the idea of the Christology is huge in his book. Secondly, discipleship, following after him. Jesus is this rabbi who trains his disciples. Uh, And we'll look at some of the conversation with disciples. Jesus shows tons of patience with the disciples. Uh, Sometimes he lets them have it. We're going to know one time where Peter, he he told him a thing or two. But uh, they're called to do some... I, uh, jaw-dropping things are called to deny themselves and follow Jesus totally. Uh, 
So you're going to look at the disciples, you're going to see his own family and how they accept what he's about, being the Messiah. And uh, it's all going to come down to faith. Uh, Mark always, by faith he means total dependence on Jesus. You're going to see some that believe in him and others that don't. It mentions a ton of like one-time mention of a little person, okay? Not literally a little person, but uh, they're mentioned once in his gospel and that's it. you can write this down if you want to go real fast, but 534, there's a girl restored to life. Uh, he mentions she's complete because of her faith. 727 through 29, there's a, a Greek woman's daughter that is healed. A demon-possessed boy is brought to life in chapter 9, verse 23. Blind Bartimaeus is healed of his blindness because of his faith. One encounter with Jesus changes their life forever. They believe, they have faith that Jesus is who he says he is, and they move on. Uh, so the little people come to faith in him, but you're going to see the disciples and his family are not as, uh, as quick to accept his, his plan. The last theme would be cosmic conflict. There's always a war going on between Satan and God and his ways. Uh, you see this uh, throughout this Gospel of Mark. The first miracle that Jesus performs involves a battle against a demon-possessed person. It demonstrates that Jesus has power even over evil spirits. Every exorcism in the mark provides a glimpse into this extent in which Satan and his minions have been bound by Jesus. Satan has been defeated by Jesus and no longer has power over God's people. However, Satan does still tempt and deceive people. He's going to deceive even his followers, even his disciples. And any disciple who loses focus on Jesus and becomes self-reliant may be defeated and become a tool of Satan. Peter's going to be called out for that. So, I want to zoom in on that second section where I said is key to understanding this gospel. So go to uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 27. Yeah, that's what I meant. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. The Holy Spirit told you that, so that's good. That's good. Interpret what I'm saying. Make, make sense of it, yes. Mark chapter 8. So here are the disciples. And we're going to see now, and the disciples, you know, when they first are called, they drop their nets and he calls all 12 of them and they follow him. And they have about how long are they following Jesus until his death? Three years, give or take, okay? So they got three years of one-on-one or one-on-twelve, somewhere in there, interaction with Jesus. So you think of any guy, if any guys were going to get it, these guys are going to get it. Yeah, they're dumb like us. 827, so Jesus is going to start here, and he's going to say three times exactly what his purpose is about. Again, keep in mind, they're thinking this Messiah is going to restore Israel. You have to get that. That's why they didn't like or get what Jesus was saying. They didn't want it to be that way. 827, then he came to Bethsaida and they brought a... Nope, that's not it. There it is. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Gotta love Peter. Well, he gets it right this time. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. He says that word Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. Go, Peter. 
May that last, but it doesn't. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Okay? Again, why does he do that? He doesn't want what they think, expectations of this Messiah figure, to construe what his real mission is about. Now, verses 31. Here he predicts his death and resurrection. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say anything about the Romans, does he? Nothing here about the Romans. We're not going to conquer the Romans. No, no, no. The Son of Man, I must suffer many things and be rejected by whom? Israel leaders at those times. Elders, chief priests, and scribes. The religious leaders of the day are going to reject Jesus Christ. Jesus knows this and says this is exactly what's going to happen. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So Peter, you know, Mr. Reactive. No way, Jesus. That is not what I signed up for. And uh, no, no, I'm not going to, no. Immediately Jesus rebukes Peter. And uh, he turns around, looks at his disciples. He rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. If you're a disciple, if you're an apostle, a follower of Christ, nothing could be, you couldn't call someone anything worse than Satan. But it does, it notes Peter was thinking what probably every Jew in that day was thinking. That's not what I want. I don't want my, and I'm sure, they don't want their leader to die, to be rejected, to hang on a cross, to and they probably really have, are struggling with the whole resurrection in three days. They probably never even got to that part, never heard it. But uh, they're just thinking Jesus is going to be gone. Now look over to uh, go to chapter 10, verse 32. The disciples are not on board. This is the third time Jesus is going to predict his death and resurrection. He's going to continue this explanation of who he is and what he's about. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. They were amazed. As they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, the Romans. They will mock him and scourge, scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Is Jesus being unclear? What's going to happen? He's really not. He's, pretty, he's stating it very clearly what's going to happen. They will hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, whip him, eventually kill him. He will rise after the third day. And that's about as clear as Jesus could say it. He said it three times. Do the disciples get it? Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of thunder, 
The sons of Zebedee came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Like rub the genie or something. I don't know what's going on. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on the other on the left, in your glory. They don't get it. They're still thinking, yeah, I've heard what you said. I didn't hear what you said, but I listened to it at least. Okay. Whenever you come in power and you sit on your throne, the throne of David, and you restore Israel, can I be to your right and the left? And can we be the guys that are right there? Your right-hand man, your left-hand man, whatever. We want to be in power with you. Okay? Again, Jesus' patience, his, uh, he's trying to teach these guys. Now, we give the disciples a hard time, but I would suggest to you, there are many people today that do not bow down to Jesus, do not accept what Jesus is about at all, and they never will, because they will not submit themselves or their ideas of who Jesus should be to what God says he is in the Bible. Some of them are looking for a Jesus that does all sorts of things. If this Jesus would only heal me of my ailment, if this Jesus would uh, make my country the best country ever and not have any difficulties, if this Jesus would whatever, and they have all these conditions on what Jesus must do. So before we throw the stones at the disciples, they do eventually get it. By Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll see Peter up there preaching the first sermon and thousands are saved because of what he does. He gets it. But they don't get it right here. It takes some time. Um, so, Jesus, he said to them, you do not know what you ask. I love his response. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say, we're able. So Jesus said, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Throughout the whole gospel, you see this idea that Jesus is going to um, submit his will to God the Father. Now, um, God and Jesus are both God. Jesus, even though he took on flesh, he didn't, he took on flesh, he didn't abandon his divinity, but, and I forget the exact passage I'm a little off, it says not even the Son knows exactly when Christ is going to come back the second time. Well, and maybe Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses might say, well, Jesus isn't divine. Of course, if he was God, he would know when he's coming back, right? Well, no. He's submitting himself to the will of the Father. And he's saying, Father, and you're going to see in Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to say, Father, your will be done, not mine. When he took on flesh, he chose not to know everything that God the Father knows. And and we can go round and round with that. But you see throughout here that Christ, Jesus Christ, is going to submit himself to the Father's will. And he says even here, I don't know who's at my right or left. That's God's decision, not mine. Okay. Uh, so they still don't get it. James and John, they're concerned about who gets the power and they want to be in on it. Uh, no. And then ultimately, I think the key verse of all the gospel of Mark, and you see, uh, you see here in verse 45 of chapter 10, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God's idea of Messiah of a savior is one that will serve and give his life for those he loves. And Jesus Christ does exactly that. And that's why Christ is on his throne and one day will come back and will establish his kingdom forever. But you have this suffering servant, this Christ, this Messiah figure that 
is way different than what they were anticipating. So I kind of noted how how do people respond to Jesus throughout this uh, this book? Um, we as Christ followers uh, we have to understand and respond to the truth of of Jesus' shed blood on the cross for us, we have to understand that that is uh, the remission of our sins. The price of our sins was paid on him at the cross. And then uh, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us about that truth. Um, But you'll notice here in some of their interactions, uh, how did his own family respond to Jesus and his mission? So go back to Mark chapter 3. He's starting his ministry at this point. Three, uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people or his family heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. <clears throat> so, yeah, his own family. Now Mary is his mother. Joseph at this point is dead. He's not mentioned anymore after Jesus is 12 years of age. Uh, so Mary and his brother and Jesus' brothers, they go to Jesus and they say, you're nuts. What you're doing is crazy. What you're about is crazy. His family uh, didn't, uh, didn't accept what he was about. It's staggering. Uh, and then uh, chapter 3, jump down to verses thir- thir- verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside. They sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him. They said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? He looked around in a circle to those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus said... Um, he rebuked them, basically. If they don't believe who I am and what I'm about, then they're not my, even though they're biologically, they're not my family right now. Those that believe, those that have faith in who I am and what I do, those are the ones that are my brothers, my mother, my sister. They're the family, the spiritual family that's going to matter. It's tough. That's what Jesus says. Now his disciples. I already said they had some days where Peter got it right, you're the Christ. Other days, uh, you know, the brothers of thunder and let me be your right and your left. And Peter like, Peter's talking like he's Satan. They had good days and bad days. Uh, Quite a few bad days that are noted here. This might not have been their favorite gospel to reference because he kind of calls them out. Uh, Chapter 9, verse Verse 31. Second time out of three, he's going to predict what's going to happen to him. Then they departed from there and they passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. (laughs) They've been called Satan too many times at this point. They're like, I don't want to... They're all nudging each other. You go ask him. You go ask him. No way. I don't want to be that one. Satan, get behind me. Uh, So they're not getting it. Okay. The disciples, 
And, and you would think the third time, and these are just the three statements that Mark noted. I don't know how many more other times Jesus said exactly what he's going to happen. How clearly does he have to say it for them to get it? I mean, are they stupid? I don't think they're stupid. Some of them maybe, but uh, I think it's more along the line that they just didn't want it to happen that way. They had this vision of this mighty ruler and their lives are going to get so much better and it's going to end a different way and have a happy ending. Okay. They don't, now the happy ending is, yeah, the three days later he's resurrected. They always miss that happy ending, but that's a happy ending. They, he, they hear all the other that happens first, the flogging and the spitting and the beating and the killing and, to the, and, the, and the Israel leaders are going to reject him. That will never happen. Oh, it's already happening behind the scenes. The Israel leaders, the, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees are just plotting to kill Jesus. Okay? It's going to happen. I want to, so it's all in what we do with who Jesus is and what he's about. Do we receive his message by faith and follow him, or do we not? Chapter 10. Jesus has this encounter uh, with this rich young ruler. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but the one that is God. Basically, he's saying, uh, Good teacher, I know you're of God. That's what he's saying. And he, kneeled, he knelt down. He was he'd being very reverent with him. And he has this burning feeling in his heart and his life that he's not right. He wants to be right with God. Okay? So he's coming to Jesus and saying, what do I got to do to get right with God? Um, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear fault witness. Do not defraud and honor your father and mother. Uh, last six, or, or six through ten of the ten commandments, okay? So Jesus gave him the checklist. This is, you got to do these things. And this is giving this guy hope. He's like, man, I... I'm doing good on those areas. Uh, he answered, said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Jesus had some sayings that I'm sure people like, what? Again, not, expect, not expected. This was not expected for this guy. This guy is wealthy. This guy is doing well for himself. And he's doing good on, the, on those six commandments. He's not doing any of those things. He's thinking he's right there. And then Jesus drops the hammer on him. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Whatever your livestock is, give it to the poor. Is the point of this why Jesus would say this to this guy? That we all should follow this and we should all not have anything. And we should be all living on the street and all be missionaries and be wanting everything. That is not the point of what he's saying here. For this guy, what was keeping him from following Christ with everything that he had from making Christ his Lord and his Savior was his riches. I said that in the beginning. I said that to follow Christ 
and for the disciples and for the family and for the people that get healed by Jesus, there comes a cost to following Christ. Jesus himself is going to say, take up your cross. You want to be my follower and follow me. This idea, and it's probably not just an American idea. It's probably a worldwide. Satan loves to give this and put it in believers and non-believers minds. If I follow Christ, my life will get better. All my problems will go away, and everyone will like me. And I will have a white picket fence, and my children will obey everything I say. They will roll out the red carpet, and they will bow every time I enter the house. I exaggerate, but you know there's people that think that. And when the first time, if I become a believer, and the first time trouble, a trial, difficulty comes my way, who do we love to blame? God. To follow Christ, to follow His way, His, uh, you have to understand forgiveness. You have to understand what it costs God to save you and to save me. It costs God a lot. And we have a tendency to minimize what Christ did on that cross. Why does Mark take a third of his gospel talking about that last week, the Passion Week, where Christ did everything to be, truly be the Messiah? If we understood the forgiveness and the cost that God went through to save us by sending his son to die for us, the one with no sin died for you and I that are full of sin. The perfect lamb of God was sacrificed. His blood was shed for me and for you, according to the scriptures. And what Jesus says is, have faith and believe in me. That's all you got to do. We say it's a free gift of love, which it is a free gift, but it wasn't free to God. It cost him a lot. It is free for us. It comes down to faith, belief, trust in what Christ did. And then I say the second part, if we understand that, what it costs God to forgive us, the rest of my life, whenever I come to grips with who Jesus is and what he did for me and for you, and I ask him to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior, from that point on, the ups and the downs of my life. He does, never promises that we will have uh, no... He promises rewards and blessings in heaven, yes. For those that follow him with their whole heart, there are rewards and blessings. But that's not really... If you really understand, that's not why you do it. I'm not doing it to get an extra, uh, an extra room on my mansion in heaven. No. I'm following God through the ups and downs of life. When I feel like it, when I don't feel like it, I'm, I'm doing the thing God wants me to do because... He is my Lord and He's my Savior. And in the good times, I thank Him. I'm grat- I have gratitude. I, 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 I'm, I understand it's not because of me or anything I'm doing. Uh, it's because by God's grace, by His blessings, He's blessing whatever that is or in that portion of my life. But that could also be taken away and it could change. So regardless, if you understand, I have a good perspective. If I have all the riches of the world like this rich young ruler, if it's all taken away and Christ says, give that away, then I give it away. It's the only time it's mentioned, by the way, in the Bible, so I don't think it's all of us should do this. But for this guy, that was the thing. He wasn't going to give it to God. He made it an idol over following Jesus. And he could not give that up. And so it says at the end, he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
there are plenty of things that can keep us from following Christ. Um, This rich young ruler never did submit to Christ. It never notes that he did. Uh, I already said the disciples were slow in figuring it out, what Christ was about and what he did, acknowledging it and seeing. And when the Holy Spirit came, he finally sealed it for them and they understood it. And then they became great uh, spreaders of the gospel uh, all throughout the regions and, uh, and, and, all, the, and all through that. Um, not everyone accepted what Jesus was and what he's about. This guy didn't. His family does come around. Mary's at the cross is, you know, this is your son, John, and all that. Mary's going to get it eventually, but she did in the beginning. So the whole book is about the Messiah. Why is he? What is he about? Um, Jesus to this rich young ruler was saying, I want you to believe uh, that the offer I make to you to follow me and my blood I, I give towards you, it's worth whatever it may cost you. You are not part of the kingdom of God, but I did everything through Jesus and my death that I restored you in the kingdom of God and I want to be king of your life and I come in and whatever that costs you, if I'm your king of your life, you're okay with it. Because you get it that you're a child of God and one day there will be no pain, no sorrow, peace, but all understanding in heaven. And whatever God calls you to, if you look at the apostles and disciples or, or even the prophets, Isaiah was cut in half by King Manasseh. Uh, uh, others were martyred and killed for their faith. Uh, the greatest ones, actually. I just don't know. I think the, the enemy loves to just do this. If you follow Christ, then it's all going to be great. And that kind of was the mentality of what these disciples wanted and thought for. So be careful. If you bring your own grid and your own presuppositions, your own ideas of what God's going to do in your life and you have this all lined out and if something doesn't go that way, you're like, wait a minute, God, that's not what I signed up for. God is God. And if he decides to bring this trial or difficulty in your life, then thank him for it and he'll sustain you through it. Pray, God, what do you want to teach me? Show me even through this difficulty. You are my God and whatever it costs, it costs. I'm thankful to be a child of God. Uh, it ends last thing and then I'll be done chapter 15 uh, John Mark kind of stings the, the followers of Christ I noted all the other ones that really didn't get what Jesus was about or definitely not by this point have gotten it but uh, Mark kind of throws in a stinger here uh, verse 37 of chapter 15 Jesus is on the cross. He's about to die. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, the Roman guard, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This guy hadn't been... Caesarea Philippi, when they did not get what Jesus was about, the disciples didn't get it. That was probably a year and a half into their time with Jesus. They had a whole another year and a half. Three times Jesus is going to say, this is what I'm about, this is my mission, and they didn't get it any of those times. This guy, uh, a Roman, Roman guard, Roman security, that just sees Jesus, on the, he's crucified there, and that's his first encounter with Jesus. He didn't get to talk with him, he didn't get whatever. He sees that, and he immediately says, 
That's the Son of God. That must have, uh, I think Mark just kind of stuck it to him. He's like, you guys had it forever and y'all didn't get it. This guy had one day, or as long as Christ was on the cross, and he acknowledged who he was. Um, I think, again, the problem with the Jews, the disciples, the rich young ruler, uh, they came with this Old Testament grid, uh, and every time the Bible talked about this Messiah, they had this idea that he would kill the Romans and elevate Israel and restore the throne of David. A powerful, powerful nation. And that grid was wrong. Isaiah 50 to 58, Isaiah 53, particularly the suffering servant, uh, by his wounds we are healed, by his stripes. Where's this militant king in that? They read and saw what they wanted to see, what they hoped for. Um, Be careful doing that. As you read scripture, allow the Holy Spirit, that if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit's in me. He helps me to interpret what the scripture is saying. I don't bring my ideas and what I want to happen to what scripture says is or going to happen or did happen. No, no, no. I allow God to the Holy Spirit to say, this is God's plan. This is what's going to happen. And some things are clear and other things are not clear. Okay? He doesn't tell us everything. No one knows the day or the time he's going to come back. It says that. So anyone says, I got the exact time Jesus is coming back again, you know they're wrong based on scripture I think it was coming back in the 80s or something but that didn't happen or if it did I missed it and that was bad Um, so that is the gospel of Mark the Messiah who he is and their uh, reception of that was I think the key to it Um, let me close a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed Heavenly Father I thank you God, that you always had a plan to to redeem us, that ever since when Genesis 3 happened, you had a plan of redemption, restoration, reconciliation for people that were far from you because of sin, sinful nature, and your plan was to redeem people through your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for, through the Holy Spirit, inspiring John Mark to write and note the important parts that he wanted to write in his gospel. I thank you for the other two gospels as well that helped to give a complete picture. Not everything Jesus did, but the things that are most important for us to understand uh, who you are and why it's important what you did and how you did it. I pray that, uh, I don't know where we are all with our walk with you, but you do. And I pray if there's people in here that don't have a relationship with with you, that they would understand that you died for them that they would immediately today receive the gift of your love through the cross and by faith that they become a child of God today. But then those of us that have perhaps been in church a long time and uh, we've been a child of God for a long time, it's easy for us to come with our ideas of how you should act or what you should do. And I pray that you would forgive us of that. You you forgave and restored the disciples, uh, even the family that didn't get what your purposes were about. You... You were patient with them. Uh, You discipled them. And uh, may we be reminded to count the cost to follow you. That we have a great relationship through the blood of Christ. That we can have forgiveness of our sins. But it comes at times with a cost. And may we be okay to accept whatever cost that is in this life. To know that you reward us in the afterlife. And uh, we'll give you the, the glory for that. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he did. And I pray in his name that you bless us. Uh, Amen.